You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Is the tech sell-off over already or just taking a rest? The Nasdaq has now turned positive while it's the Dow's turn to lag. The Dean of Valuations joins us on where he sees value in these markets. Plus, counting down to the jobs report, the labor market is so strong, it's bringing the Fed off the sidelines. Will tomorrow's number keep that narrative intact? And coming up in rapid fire, where the street sees value in some hard-hit stocks like Bed Bath & Beyond. But first, let's get you the market action today, and Dom Chu joins us with that. All right, we're going to call this stabilization, Kelly, right? Because we saw the bigger broad-based sell-offs yesterday. But as you can see here, it's a bit more of a mixed picture. We're off the worst and best levels of the day from a, from a decent standpoint. The Dow Industrials, though, still off about 38 points, one-tenth of 1%. The S&P taking a peak at positive territory, up 11 handles. 47.11 the last trade there, up one-quarter of 1%. And the Nasdaq Composite up about one-quarter of 1% as well, up up about 40 points. It was much deeper in the red at one point. So we'll see whether or not there's any kind of that buying stability for some of those beaten up NASDAQ technology and media type names. Another place to keep an eye on, speaking of that area, is some of the hardest hit sectors within the overall market and technology specifically. Cloud computing has been hit especially hard over the course of the last couple of months here from a valuation standpoint and an outright price standpoint. Take a look at, though, at this particular ETF, the Wisdom Tree Cloud ETF, ticker WCLD. This is an intraday chart. You can see more selling weakness here, but there has been a bit more of a bid. It could be some short covering. It could also be some fundamental value buying at some of these beaten up names. We'll keep an eye on some of those sectors, software, cloud computing among those. And then a stock we don't often talk about. But it is far and away the best performing stock in the S&P 500 today, and that is Lamb Weston. What is Lamb Weston? They're the biggest supplier of frozen potato products in North America. That stock is up about 10% right now on much better than expected financial results. Quarterly results at top expectations has this potato producer and supplier, Lamb Weston, up 10%. Not often I can say it's the best performing stock in the S&P on a daily basis. Back over to you. The French fry indicator, we'll call it. Dom, thank you very much. All right, Bespoke Capital is noting an interesting trend from 2021 repeating itself in the first three trading days of this year. The outperformance of financials over technology. It's actually at its highest level, over here she said, in over a year exactly a year, really. And tech's 3% decline that we've seen in the last three sessions, they say don't fear too much about that. Other than the grim years of 2000 and 2008, the Nasdaq typically recovered to trade higher by 15% by year end anytime we started with three trading sessions in the red. And last year, remember, tech rebounded by the end of the first quarter. Here's the Nasdaq chart from 2021. You can see we are off to a mixed start. This was a strong quarter for energy and financials as well. But all of a sudden hit this inflection point here, turned out with some pretty strong gains of about 21%. For the year. Is 2022 going to be much of the same? And where should investors lay their bets? Joining me now is Paul Hickey himself. He's the co-founder of Bespoke Investment Group. And Aswat Demoter is NYU Stern School of Business Professor of Finance. And it's great to have you guys both here. Paul, let me just start with you. Did I get did I get all this data correct? And what does it tell you? Yeah, so I mean, I think to the point we've been here before, uh, we saw an interesting headline this morning, uh, pandemic tech bubbles echo those of the dot-com era. So I mean, that that headline encapsulates a lot of the sentiment today, but it was exactly from a year ago today, three days into 2021, uh, where we saw underperformance of tech relative to financials. Um, and you know there was a lot of concerns heading into 2021 
that tech was finished and it ended up performing in line with the market. So where, where tech goes from here is debatable, but there's been several, more than a few premature headlines written about the tech sector, premature obituaries written about the tech sector over the last several years. So uh, just because it's so expected uh, doesn't mean it always pans out. Professor DeModeran, do you think this correction has been necessary and has it run its course? No, I, I think we need some perspective here. I mean, this this three uh, percent drop is after a decade of uh, about performance. But that said, though, I think we're bundling very divergent stocks into what we call tech now. You got young tech and old tech. I mean, Apple and uh, and Peloton are both in the, in, in viewed as tech companies. I don't know why. We got manufacturing tech and software tech. And one reason I think it's become so difficult to make a statement about tech overall is there are parts of tech that are going to do much better than others. So I, I think from, from that perspective, I think we need to be cautious about drawing judgments about the entire sector. But would you, Professor, still basically look at price-to-earnings ratios and say, okay, big tech, certainly names like Meta, theirs looks relatively in line with historicals mm -hmm. and what's reasonable, but obviously, well, even Salesforce is up at 85 times you know, right. forward earnings. I mean, is, is PE still the sort of rock-solid indicator you'd use to separate the wheat from the chaff? Now, P has always been a very rough indicator of pricing. I've never believed that picking stocks based on P has made anybody money except for those people who talk about it in hindsight. <laughs> I think P in conjunction with other variables makes sense. I think you're right, though, in drawing a distinction between old tech and new tech. I mean, old tech and the Microsofts, the Apples of the world are no more overpriced than the rest of the market. We can make an argument about the entire market, but you could make that about old tech. The young tech companies, and in fact, it's not just tech companies. Young companies in general have benefited from risk capital flowing in, especially in the last few years, and pushing them to levels that I think is unsustainable, at least in, in collection. In the aggregate, I think we've overpriced companies which have very little earnings, have huge growth potential, because they can't all succeed in the economy that we have. So I think that's going to be the test coming for, I mean, not just for this year, but for the years forward, is which of these companies are going to be the winners and which are going to fall to the wayside. Yeah, so you're almost drawing a distinction, not so much, you know, high and low PE, but young versus old, which is interesting. Exactly. Paul, what would you exactly. add? Because another way to slice this, a third way, is momentum, obviously. You know, growth over value. You could just pick any momentum style. There's ETFs for that and all the rest of it. I mean, right. wh what do you, Paul, best encapsulates the uh, rotation that we've been seeing? So I, I think to the point earlier, uh, what, we, what we've seen is that you have the established tech companies and these young tech companies, which um, the market has done a very good job of isolating the areas of excessive valuation and repricing those names. Stocks in the S and Russell 1000 with the highest price to sales ratios are down about 8% just in the last three days, whereas uh, you know more reasonable price to sales ratios are flat to higher. Uh, so, and you look at the ARC names, like they're down 50% since their highs a year ago. So, and in the software sector, we've seen big pullbacks where these sectors don't have a lot of um, historical earnings or track records to, um, to fall back on. And investors here are taking the, you know, the rational approach and repricing some of these names that have had ex excessive valuation. So, I think that prior point was, you know, a very good one where you have the old tech, which is established and holding up much better. The technology sector is down 3% this year, but some of these newer uh, sectors where that focus on newer tech companies are down a lot more. Yeah. IPOs, the Renaissance yeah. IPO is down 25% in three months. 
Wow. So, Professor, what would you tell your students who have positions in Art K? I said, why would you take that position in the first place? You live by momentum, you die by momentum. I mean, I think, you know, you know, there are lots of things you can say that are good about art, but it's a momentum play. It's a pure momentum play. And from that perspective, I, I am not surprised at the huge run-ups and rundowns you see in it. Well, you call it a momentum play and it's trading like that. But what if people say, no, I believe in the, the sort of stock selection in the value creation and that these are names that will, you're already laughing before I can finish the, the comment. What would you say? I'd say there's no stock selection in ARC. They're playing, I mean, ARC's biggest um, strength is calling macro trends. It's, it's, its biggest weakness is actually picking individual stocks. So I think on the macro trend issue, I think ARC has done a very good job of calling trends that have occurred, especially over the last five, six, seven years. I mean, on the stock selection, not so much because there is, doesn't seem to be a whole lot of stock level, company level analysis of any strength coming out of ARC. Wow. All right. Let me turn to Paul and ask about the trading behavior today where we've seen now this NASDAQ jump to the leadership. The Dow is underperforming. What are you going to be watching? What, what should be on investors dashboards, Paul, to figure out whether we're going to see a reversion to the last three trading days or not here? Yeah, so again, it's three trading days into the year. This is the fourth trading day. I think when you get to uh, next week and we start to see earnings reports come in, that'll be give us a bigger tell. I think what's a key, two key things here, though, are there's very little conviction in the market. Anytime you have a hawkish comment by Powell, whether it was in early December or just the minutes uh, yesterday, investors really head for the exits uh, very quick. So they're not, there's very little conviction and there's, um, there's, there's, there's very little conviction in position. So I, I think that tells people that, you know, there's not a whole lot of complacency in the market. So for, looking forward, all we're talking about this year is what can go wrong with COVID, the Fed, uh, valuations, and fiscal stimulus, uh, monetary uh, easiness coming back. But all these things are well known and in the headlines right now. And if we could all just be successful investors looking at the headlines, we'd all be billionaires and rocket ships right now. So I don't think... Uh, it's not that easy by just saying, you know, all the concerns out there, you have to sell. Uh, I think investors need to take a balanced approach to sectors that have, you know, attractive valuations, have some exposure to tech, but you also have to have exposure to, uh, you know, more traditional sectors like healthcare, energy, and financials. All right. And there's ARC up half a percent this afternoon. Guys, thank you very, very much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Paul Hickey Thank and Iswath Demotorin. All right, let's stick with tech and drill down on some names that could be attractive amid the sell-off that really dates back to last year. Joining me now is Chris Crisanti. He's the chief equity strategist and senior portfolio manager at MAI Capital Management. Chris, it's great to see you again. I don't usually think of you as the type to want to pick up a lot of newer names to the market that might have formerly had really high PEs. Are there some attractive to you here? Yeah, I sure think so, Kelly. First of all, Happy New Year. It's nice to be back in the new year. Uh, but secondly, uh, there's a couple of stocks that are, the tech sell-off has been so non-discriminant. And so everything is getting thrown out. So if you do your homework, I think there's a several things. And and I agree with the professor before saying it's PE is, is you know, secondary to company fundamentals, earnings growth, things like that. I love Amazon here. It's my favorite FANG stock. Uh, it did hardly anything last year, underperformed the market by 20%. Uh, it was a capital rebuilding year last year for Amazon. 
Years that follow capital rebuilding years are typically quite good for the stock, so I like it a lot. Um, my second name would be Roku, and Roku is a controversial name, um, and it's down a whole bunch in the last six months, although for the last three years it's been a terrific stock in our portfolio. Um, it's right in the middle of streaming. Uh, it's lost a lot of confidence, so its price to sales now is back down to a three-year low. I think it's a great place to pick it up. Uh, and if you think like we do that streaming is only in the second or third inning, uh, there's no better company really to play that trend. Do you want to offer a comment about the sectors and the rotation that we've seen here? Do you just look at these environments and go, great, whatever creates the best stock selection opportunity is, is what I'm focused on? Or do you have to be mindful of continued pressure that might be on tech or momentum from higher rates or the Fed or so forth? Of course you have to be mindful, but but boy, we, we sure love when rotations like this happen because, as I mentioned, the indiscriminate selling creates opportunities in, in really good companies. It's tough to buy a Facebook or a Google, for example, below a market multiple, but you can do that this week. It's almost like a Ginsu knife commercial. It's, you know, it's on sale and you get extra. So uh, th that's kind of why us active managers like the dislocation if you have the stomach to, to really step in and look for the values. Where else, so in financials and energy, which have actually traded much stronger, are those becoming less attractive to you or are there still names that you think you can own for a solid 2022? No, no, they, I, I think you're exactly right. I think those, those are less attractive. And again, there's three important things in, in active stock picking, valuation, valuation, and valuation. <laughs> so what we're looking at with the banks is uh, most high-quality banks are now trading at more than twice book value. That, that's, a tough, that's a tough price to pay for a, a company that's basically in a cyclical business. We have no credit issues right now. So, so to us, that's a bad thing in the sense of things can't get any better for the banks. So um, we would look for value elsewhere at companies that can grow their earnings reliably through what's going to end up being, I think, a very complicated year. Well, I also enjoy you have a list of your 10 surprises for 2022. Sure. I do like looking through when people send these along. A couple caught my eye in particular. And the first, if you could just quickly elaborate on, you, do, you don't think crypto is going to have a great year, do you? No, I, th I think it's going to be a tougher year for crypto, uh, almost a victim of its own success, because I think there'll be calls for regulation from all over the place, from China, from Europe, here in the United States. Although I do think there's going to be a great winnowing as well. I, th I think the more established coins like Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, will do quite well after regulations tend to come into focus. And then once regulations are in place, institutional investors, I think, will get more comfortable treating Bitcoin, not like a currency, but like gold, which, you know, which is a hedge against inflation and other things. Oh, so many other good provocative ones. We put them up on the screen there. You think COVID's actually going to sideline China for a little while, that Russia will invade Ukraine, and that the Midwest should prepare for a cyber attack on its energy grid. Uh, some lovely thoughts that we'll leave with no elaboration. <laughs> Maybe we'll have you back. We can talk more about them. But Chris, thanks so much Look for laying out it. some of your ideas this year. Thanks, Kelly. Good to be with you. Chris Grisanti with MAI Capital Management. For more ideas on where to put your money, be sure to catch an exclusive interview with Bridgewater Associates founder Ray Dalio on Closing Bell today at 3 p.m. Eastern. Now some breaking news on the Fed balance sheet. Steve Leisman here with the story. Steve? Thanks very much, Kelly. Yeah, uh, St. Louis Fed President Jim Biller telling a group in St. Louis at this hour that the Fed is in a good position to take additional steps to control inflation. Those steps include passive balance sheet runoff. I'll come back to that word in just a second. It's an interesting word, as well as raising interest rates. Uh, the Fed, he says, could hike rates as soon as 
March, and it can adjust rates up and down depending upon, uh, do rates faster or slower depending upon the economic data. He does not see Omicron as a big risk to the economy, believes that cases, if it follows the South African model, will fall off in the coming weeks. Now, separately, San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly saying that the Fed needs to hike rates to keep the economy in balance. She was a dove that's moved over uh, uh, to now uh, favoring or supporting rate hikes. But she does say the Fed should only reduce the balance sheet after raising rates. So a more dovish idea. Kelly, you'll remember that uh, Bullard was one of the first people in the fall to talk about balance sheet runoffs. He was, he, he was joined by uh, Governor Chris Waller, who used to be his research uh, director out in St. Louis. Now he's a Fed governor. So that's sort of St. Louis team out there uh, in favor of balance sheet runoff. But it's interesting that uh, uh, Bullard is talking about passive rather than active. Passive is just when the, when the security matures, they don't buy it back rather than active, which would be actually selling it. So to the extent that Bullard's in favor of a balance sheet runoff, he's favor at this point, a passive one. Passive balance sheet runoff. Steve, put this in context as the markets weaken a little bit here. Do, would you summarize this as basically more hawkish or more dovish than people have been calculating if we go back to the Fed minutes yesterday? I, I think it's I think it's incremental. I think I think it is interesting to see that there is a bit of a uh, a hawk dove split between Daly and Bullard on the idea of when to trigger it. So there is a debate on the committee. I think that was clear from the minutes yesterday. They haven't decided on when to do it or how to do it quite yet. They're talking about it. Uh, they're talking about it pr pretty aggressively, though. So I would say this situation is as it was that the Fed is talking about. It. And it's probably a smart idea to th been thinking about the idea at the Fed sometime this year, as soon as the summer. If the Hawks have their way, maybe a little bit later in the year, if the Dubs have their way, the Fed could be uh, passively reducing its balance sheet. Yeah, it's almost $9 trillion balance sheet. Steve, thank you so much for all the headlines. Our yeah, Steve Leisman, sure. NASDAQ Thanks. still up a quarter percent. Coming up, the great resignation continues to pick up steam. This as COVID continues to change how and where people want to work. Recruiter.com's Evan Stone next with the job trends he's seeing ahead of tomorrow's big report. Plus, buying a home has become the least affordable in 13 years. Don't try renting, though. That's way up, too. Throw in fast-rising mortgage rates. And what's going to happen to the housing market this year? We'll dive in. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. 4.5 million. That's how many workers quit their jobs last month, setting a new record as the great resignation accelerates. Add to this the changing job fulfillment landscape and wage hikes for high earners. Think above $800,000 a year. Joining me to discuss what it all means ahead of tomorrow's jobs report is Evan Sohn, the chairman and CEO of Recruiter.com. Evan, it's great to have you here. And I'm reminded, I think it might be on the front page today of a lot of banks who are struggling because their employees want to keep working from home, I'm talking about the higher you know, earning positions here. And they were told it's important to come back for firm culture and all the rest of it, but now they're sort of tacitly allowed to go home again. And this is going to be hard to overcome when they want to bring people back, isn't it? I uh, completely agree. And by the way, Happy New Year, Kelly. You too. Um, yeah, I think what we saw last month or in the December recruiter.com recruiter index is what we would call a great alignment. 
Uh, remote jobs are up by almost 30% to 36% of the jobs that the recruiters are working on. And that is now the highest priority for uh, the candidates as well, being 20% uh, 20, 20 only being compensation and the rest being non-compensation and remote work. So if the jobs are remote and the candidates want remote, that's why our recruiter index went from 3.6 last month to 3.7 this month. So basically, it's good for the labor market that these objectives are aligning. But can it last? What happens if companies get more serious in six months' time about making everyone come in? Yeah, I, I think what, what needs to happen, and we talked about this last month also, is just this alignment of company culture and the company uh, requirements to the candidates themselves. Uh, whether that's if it's a company that only wants to hire people that are going to come to the office, then they're only going to get candidates that want to come into the office. And they need to really align those together. When we see what we're seeing last month is just the, the growth of remote work. And maybe it's Omicron sort of forcing people to work at home, forcing the jobs to be remote. But we're going to see companies really start to think about how do they want to attract people. And we saw again, uh, uh, salaries go up again for another month. So we're really seeing lots of those things sort of aligned together. One of the questions, and this was a discussion we were recently having on Twitter, people want to know where are those who are quitting their jobs? And for instance, leisure and hospitality are more of the front lines areas. Where are they going? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, someone asked me, you know, how are they, get, how are they making money, right? How are they surviving if they're actually leaving their jobs? Um, I think that, you know, there there is this whole gig economy. There was just a uh, 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 on CNBC talking about Uber. You know, there are all these people pr uh, participating in the gig economy. And the question is whether these, uh, the folks that are working in factories are either going to other factories or are they actually taking on these remote from home, work from home uh, gig assignments? Uh, I think we'll have to you know, dig more into it to see where that's actually happening. And a final word, you think this all bodes well for the jobs report tomorrow and for the labor market in the months to come, even with Omicron? Yeah, so I think what Omicron, Omicron really did was it just forced this issue of we're going to be remote for a little while. And as long as the companies sort of acknowledge that that's what they're going, uh, that, that we're going to have to be remote for a while and attracting the candidates that want to work remote. And by the way, not everyone wants to work remote. Some people want to have that in-person experience, uh, the, uh, the the culture, the family-like experience of, a, of an in-person job. So I think that this evaluation of how people want to work and how companies want to work, uh, are, we're just getting better at it. And I think you look at ADP's numbers, and it really shows certainly for the companies, the larger companies with 500 employers or more, that they're actually just getting good at it. They're increasing the funnels of candidates coming into their pipelines. Yeah. Uh, they're increasing uh, their recruiters that are actually uh, processing these candidates. And hopefully this is a good sign for things to come. Well, we'll leave it on that hopeful note. Evan, thanks for your time. We always appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Evan Zone with Recruiter.com. Still ahead, fintech's been taking a beating over the past month, but it's a different story for Visa, MasterCard, and Amex. We'll look at this divergence and why one analyst thinks the legacy payment stocks are poised to have a good year. Welcome back. We had a nice market rebound, but it's evaporating. Look right there on the screen behind me. The Nasdaq is about to go negative once again. The Dow is down 110 points now. The S&P is only up four and the Nasdaq is only up five. Let's get to Tyler Matheson in the meantime for a CNBC News update. Ty? Kelly, thanks very much. And here's what's happening at this hour. New Yorkers will be able to bet on sports using their phones beginning Saturday morning. The State Gaming Commission has approved four platforms to begin taking wagers. They are Caesars Sportsbook, DraftKings, FanDuel, and Rush Street Interactive. 
The world's number one ranked tennis player has been confined in an immigration detention hotel. Novak Djokovic is waiting for a court to decide whether he can compete in the Australian Open, even though he's not vaccinated against COVID. His visa was canceled after border officials denied his medical exemption. Many Djokovic fans uh, in his home country of Serbia are outraged. Hundreds gathered outside the country's parliament to show their support of the tennis star. His father told the crowd his son is being held, quote, in jail and urged them to continue protesting until he is free. And on the news tonight, we will speak with Liz Cheney, ranking Republican on the January 6th panel, about the probe into the Capitol Hill riot and her thoughts on the GOP response on this first anniversary of the attacks. That's tonight with Shep at 7 Eastern. Kelly, back to you. All right, Tyler, thanks. I'll see you soon. Mm -hmm. Coming up, a big mistake, a buyback bounce, and flying high. These three retailers getting a nice boost today, but still at least off 50% from their highs. Should you buy them or stay clear? A special edition of Rapid Fire next. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple stocks that should be on your radar. It's time for a beaten down buys edition of Rapid Fire. Four stocks, 50% or more off their 52-week high, and getting some bullish news today. We'll give you the story and the trade on each one. Here to help me break down the moves and the headlines, Matt Maley is chief market strategist at Miller Tabak. He'll have our trades today. He's joined by our own Lauren Thomas, CNBC.com's retail reporter, and Dominic Chu to round things out. Welcome, everybody. First up, $100 million. That's what Bed Bath & Beyond said supply chain issues cost the company and lost sales for the third quarter. It isn't just the lack of inventory either. CEO Mark Tritton said on the earnings call he regrets scaling back Bed Bath's ubiquitous coupon, coupon program last year. Quote, we artificially cut off that lifeline, that regular rhythm of communication to our customer, and it was a big mistake that impacted on our business, both in Q2 and has permeated through Q3 and beyond. Bed Bath shares still up about 9% today. Dom, your thoughts here. So, so my thoughts, first of all, I agree with it because I used to actually go and buy stuff at Bed Bath & Beyond because I would bring that ubiquitous 20% off or $5 off coupon for one item or whatever it was. It was a call to action. No matter what, even if I knew I didn't really need something, I would go and do it just because I had that coupon in my hand. <laughs> so I guess a lot of people do feel the same way I do. What, what I would point out is it, it's interesting because of the disappointing results, yet why is the stock up higher? Well, this is still one of those meme stocks, right? I'm not saying that the meme is totally all about the move higher. This is still, though, a stock that has a 21% short interest on shares. That's roughly in line with what AMC Entertainment is right now. So if you take a look at the overall picture for why the shares are trading the way that they are, they are still beat up very, very badly. However, when you see a violent move higher like this, it could just be because short covering becomes a, an increasingly bigger part of that particular story. Yeah, Lauren, I don't know if, if Bye Bye Baby was part of that, but I know anecdotally in our neighborhood WhatsApp group, I was asking around for coupon codes, and it was becoming kind of common towards the end of last year. If people found one for either store, they would send it along. You know, hey, if someone needs this, they had gotten scarcer. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned Bye Bye Baby. I have to say that was honestly one of the, the few bright spots in this earnings report was that particular business. So while overall same-store sales were down about 7% in the quarter, Bed Bath & Beyond uh, posted a decline, that division. But the Bye Bye Baby business was actually up uh, mid-single digits. So we saw some impressive growth um, from that side of, of Bed Bath and & Beyond. And, and CEO Mark Tritton said on the earnings call that it, essentially during the pandemic, we've seen a shift 
away from home. So some of those categories that just performed really well last year as mm -hmm. Americans were stocking up on kitchen items, bath items for their homes and whatnot. That ca those categories have experienced some softness of late, whereas baby, you know, as we're, we're seeing a millennial driven baby boom uh, into 2022 and and uh, something to watch for a number of retail stocks. But but Bed Bath and Beyond, as a result, with its bye bye baby division, uh, is poised to be a beneficiary yeah. of that trend. I know Simeon Siegel over at BMO is a fan is reading his note about the stock this morning. Matt, what would you do with it? Yeah, I, the stock you know acts pretty well here. Obviously, today it is. But uh, one of the things I like the fact that when it you know has been trending lower here the last couple of weeks, it was able to hold its October lows. So that's a positive thing. But I also like the fact that they were they said their margins were, were holding up uh, very nicely. Let's face it, this is the key key issue for next year, uh, for this year I should say. Now that we're into 2022, key issue for a lot of these retailers. I mean, everybody's worried about inflation. Uh, are they going to be able to hold their margins? Now, the one thing I do worry about though is that you know the margins held up through the last quarter, well, what's going to happen after? And we had pent-up demand last year that was kind of spent during the summer, but I think we had a, kind of a new wave of pent-up demand during Christmas because Christmas 2020 was so bad. What are people going to do next year? Uh, you know, this year, I should say, uh, going forward. Was that just to kind of, uh, you know, they were able to keep margins because people were spending uh, due to their kind of, uh, you know, they wanted to just have one last uh, uh, blowout here before uh, before 2022, before inflation really hit? Uh, or is it something that's going to be able to be maintained? So we're going to be watching this not only for, for, for uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, but I think as we get, especially a lot of these retailers are late, uh, yeah. you know, actually, you know, report till next year. So that, that's going to be very important. All right. Uh, by the way, the CEO, Mark Tritton, is going to be on Mad Money tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern. Always look forward to getting more color uh, from that. And we'll move along now. Let's talk about Stitch Fix. It's rallying more than 11 percent today after announcing a share buyback program up to $150 million. They went public in 2017. The shares peaked at $113 early last year, and they are below 20 right now. It's an 80 percent decline. Is a buyback enough to get investors on board? Lauren, what do you think? Yeah, well, first, I just think we have to point out Stitch Fix is one of those stocks. It is incredibly volatile. It's one of those names that each time they report earnings, I think you can almost anticipate a wild upswing or, or uh, some downside there after those earnings reports. So last quarter, um, so the most re recent results that Stitch Fix posted, they did lower their outlook for the year. Um, I think under CEO Elizabeth Spalding, who hasn't been at the helm for that long, Stitch Fix is really undergoing a transformation, right? So they're increasingly moving away from this subscription-based model. They've now opened up their website to where you can log in just like you would to Macy's.com and buy a single piece of clothing or a single pair of shoes. And so that's changing, you know, what the, what the business is ultimately going to look like at its core. And CEO uh, Elizabeth Spalding has said, you know, that's going to take time to really raise awareness uh, to consumers that you can now go to Stitch Fix to, again, just buy one piece of clothing. You, you don't need to be a member. And I think that's why we've seen, you know, a sell off here of late. There's a little bit of doubt that that, that will ultimately play out um, for them successfully when this is obviously a very competitive space um, and apparel has, has struggled over the years. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, shares are rallying today because they have been beaten down so much of late. So, Matt, maybe you're a little interested in poking around with Bed Bath. What about Stitch Fix? Yeah, the one thing that, that I like about this is that, number one, when they, they, they came out with their uh, uh, with their earnings back in December and the stock just got absolutely annihilated. 
And however, a lot of times when you get these news and they come up with excuses and you know that this transition uh, that that we're talking about here, and it's like, oh, that sounds like it's just a, a, a cheap excuse, and this stock's going to go lower. Well, it hasn't. It's it's held in there very well, and that's always a key thing. Whenever I see a stock uh, come out with bad news, do we get a downside follow through? We have not seen that. So on a trading basis, that's that's positive. But more than anything, I, I really like the fact that they've seen a lot of insider buying in the stock. I mean, 2021 was a record year for insider selling, and that's been one of the things that the bears have really attached to about about the broad market. But when you look at it, well, you know. Uh, People sell insiders sell for a lot of different reasons. They only buy for one reason. They obviously have a lot of confidence in, in the in the company, and so uh, not only they're buying back shares, but they're buying back for their own uh, pocketbooks. Uh, I think that bodes well for the stock. All right, good points. Let's move along to Allbirds. One more beaten down retailer getting a boost today. Morgan Stanley upgrading them to outperform Birds up eight percent today. As analysts write, their ESG approach is authentic and important to consumers. The products are differentiated and innovative, but with shares more than fifty percent off the highs from its IPO in November. Is the story really all that, Dom? I know Tyler likes the sneakers. I like to getting my dad some. A lot of folks like the sneakers. My wife wears those sneakers. A lot of friends of mine wear those sneakers. I see them almost everywhere. I mean, I think Wilfred Frost wears them. I've seen them in, in, in the studio every once in a while. He might even be at the exchange wearing those sneakers right now. Yes, they are a big deal because they are one of those brands that's kind of really trying to chip in at, at the establishment, at Nike, at Adidas, at, at all the other big makers out there, Under Armour. They've got that ESG component, which makes the brand a lot more appealing to a very okay, certain perfect. set of people out there. And that's going to be something that you're going to have to watch, because if this is a situation where there's a value trade to be had, this is one of those scenarios where maybe the market's given you that opportunity. I would say that with Allbirds, there is a compelling case if they can give you that kind of feel good approach to buying sneakers. I like shoes that fit. These things, I've been told, are very comfortable. So I would have to try it out personally before I say, hey, you know, this is a stock I'd want to buy. I just like the idea of being able to pop them in the wash. But my Amazon knockoffs also do that. (laughs) It just maybe don't last as long. All right, Dom, we'll leave it there. Give you the word on Bird. (laughs) Finally, today, Coinbase. This one's slightly lower. Crypto sinking again, but it did get an upgrade at Bank of America. They're saying the move beyond crypto to diversify could help the stock do better, uh, give them more than just crypto retail trading revenues in 2022. They upgraded it to a buy, maintained a 340 price objective, stocks at 232, so that's a pretty hefty upside. Coinbase is still 50% below its all-time high from that IPO back in April. Matt, what would you do with Coin? I like the stock. I think that they're they're dead right. The B of A is, is, is dead right. That they're diversifying. They're already more diversified than people realize. So the way that it trades tick for tick with the Bitcoin is it shouldn't do that. But also, uh, I, I also believe that, uh, that, you know, let's face it, Bitcoin and all the cryptocurrencies have been wildly uh, uh, vol- volatile. The fact that they've come down on it may even break below 40,000 on Bitcoin. That doesn't mean it can't go to 100,000 uh, at some point this year or some point in, in the first half of this year. But more importantly, I do think that people don't understand what was going on in the institutional side of the business this year. They didn't get into these uh, Bitcoins, you know, into, well, all these uh, uh, cryptos or most of these cryptos until the spring and summer. So by the end of the year, they were actually flat or down. They weren't looking to, to you know, they like to, those institutions like to push up the stocks that, uh, that are doing well and get rid of the ones that aren't doing well. Well, they got in so late that they weren't doing well and they were also a very small portion of their portfolios. However, it's still a long-term, important long-term asset for them. So I think they're going to be getting back in here. Uh, I think there's going to be a big change here this year uh, with the institutional player. It may not come until we, we fall a little bit further, uh, but they, they 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 bailed out towards the end of the year, and I think they're going to have no choice but to get back in uh, right. in this new year. So 
I, I want to run uh, use Coinbase to run run with that. Matt Maley in a bullish mood today on a lot of these stocks. Thank you very much for joining us. Lauren Thomas, thank you as well from CNBC.com, our Dom Chu. We always appreciate it. Still ahead, 2021 was one for the record books. IPOs, deal-making, crypto thefts. We have more on that last one in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. 2021 was a big year for crypto, as a lot of the cryptos really hit the mainstream. But it was also a big year for crypto thefts. Eamon Javers joins us now with that story. Eamon? Yeah, that's right, Kelly. A whopping $3.2 billion worth of crypto was stolen last year. That's according to a new report from the firm Chainalysis. It's a 516% increase over the year before. That's a huge number, and so is this one. 72% of the stolen funds were taken from so-called DeFi platforms. Those are those decentralized finance services with no central exchange authority governing the whole thing. Chainalysis explains that's because DeFi is such a fast-growing segment of the cryptocurrency environment and many developers out there just haven't put in place enough security and many investors are piling in without doing enough of their own homework on the services themselves overall a stunning 14 billion dollars from all sources including everything from ransomware to terror financing to darknet markets and others went to these illicit addresses as they call them last year again that's according to chainalysis they were also able to calculate the total crypto war chest currently held by these illicit addresses associated with criminal activity. That figure is $10 billion worth of crypto. It's fueled by the crime itself, but also the increasing value of the criminal's crypto assets. One other piece of good news here, Kelly, even as the total crypto thefts are increasing and in a big way, the percentage over of overall crypto activity associated with crime, that's actually coming down. And that's because of this enormous increase that we've seen in legitimate crypto transactions. So as a percentage, crime much less than it was in previous years, Kelly. Well, that, that is an interesting point. Can law enforcement do anything to get the funds back, Eamon? What we saw in 2021 is, yes, they are starting to be able to figure out how to get to the crypto exchanges and claw back some of that money when they can get an exchange operating in a jurisdiction that's in an amenable uh, legal situation vis-a-vis the United States. So U.S. law enforcement has been able to do that. They're not always successful. They haven't been able to do 100 percent of it. But the crypto folks tell you that what's what's interesting here is that they can see the addresses, they can see the wallets, they can see where the stolen crypto is. And if it hits an exchange, they can start to make efforts to claw that back. Wow. Eamon, thank you very much. Eamon Javers on top of the story for us. Up next, American Express, the only payment stock to outperform the S&P last year, while fintech really took a beating. Why 2022 could be a different story for both legacy names and the so-called disruptors. Welcome back. Fintech taking a pretty hefty fall over the past month. Take a look at these declines for Block, formerly Square, down 20%. Toast, down 22%. Affirm, the BNPL lender, down 26%. All of them down 20% or more. Different story for the legacy payment stocks, though. Take a look at Visa, MasterCard, and Amex. Visa's up 9%. MasterCard up 11%. Amex up 7%. That's no surprise to Lisa Ellis of Moffat Nathanson, who lists those legacy names as top picks for 2022. All right, Lisa, I'm sort of a skeptic on some of these, Visa, MasterCard especially. And they were disappointing last year to those who had ridden strong performance for the past decade. Why are they getting their mojo back? They're they're getting their mojo back because 
believe it or not, they're still waiting for their benefits from the recovery from the pandemic. Uh, they're very tied to travel-related spending. All three networks are travel and entertainment-related spending. And um, as we've kind of come through this last variant where you've seen the, wa the latest wave with Omicron, but not triggering necessarily a huge amount of shift in border closures, et cetera, there's a lot of increased investor optimism that travel, entertainment, and other luxury goods, you know, like le leisure spending will come back in force in 2022. And that's what we're really waiting for with those names. Just as a reminder, prior to the pandemic, about a quarter of Visa, MasterCard, and American Express's revenues were linked directly to travel and entertainment spending. That is still down over 40% or so from where it was in 2019. Wow. So there's a big piece of these businesses still to come back. Big catalyst for those who are looking for the stock moves and the appreciation. So basically it's don't worry about the competition, you know, the pressure from the likes of uh, Amazon on some of these margins. Just look at the revenue growth story that we're likely to experience. And why do you think even a name like Global Payments, which was a really tough stock last year, Fiserv, FAS, why do you think they could still have a strong year as well? Yeah, there's there's kind of with with those guys, Pfizer, FIS, Global Payments, all three of which are you know more of these kind of plumbing companies uh, in the payment system. They also um, are kind of still riding that you know that remaining like wave of the pandemic coming back. But the other aspect there is just simply you know markets related factor. They've derated substantially. They're now value names essentially. They're trading at over a twenty percent discount to the market, and we're seeing you know, as, as you showed in the other slide, right, this sharp rotation out as interest rates are rising, we have inflation, et cetera, this sharp rotation out of some of these growthy names and into more value names. And they're square beneficiaries of, of that trend of the group. Fiserv is our favorite, but really all three of them are, are moving in tandem. And, uh, you know, in those, it's kind of exciting because their earnings growth should also be pretty good, not quite as good as the networks, uh, but in the sort of high teens, 20% level. And you've also got this potential for a re-rating uh, re in valuation because they've sold off so much. So finally, then, what do you do with fintech, with the likes of Block, Affirm, uh, with the pressure that you've just described? Uh, you know, there you, you really have to pick... Um, one, you might want to just sit it out a little bit here uh, and, and see where we bottom when it comes to all of the rate-related activity. Uh, but you really want to just pick the longer-term winners and ideally pick stocks that you're comfortable holding on a multi-year time horizon. Um, we love Block uh, for that reason. Um, they've got the big afterpay acquisition coming in this year. That will be a catalyst for them. Their seller business, you know, the POS business is doing a is a is is growing very nicely, high 20s, and is expanding outside the U.S. Um, and so we just would say, you know, kind of pick your spots in there and, and ideally have um, maybe a multi-year time horizon because they grow into their valuations very quickly. You know, with a company like Block, they're growing EBITDA at over at 30, 40 percent. So if you're OK holding it for a couple of years, you know, you know what I mean? Like yep. you, they grow right into um, into the valuation. Yeah, she's saying don't jump into this and think you're going to make your money in a week. Uh, but you do like the story long term. Lisa, always great to have you on. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kelly. And Lisa happy Ellis, you too, with Moffat Nathanson. And up next, the answer to the age-old real estate question, should you buy or rent? It's murky right now. We'll dig into it next. Home prices are still at record highs, but rents are also climbing big time. So what's the best tack, renting or buying? Diana Olick trying to dig into that question for us. Diana? 
Well, Kelly, home affordability has really taken a hit during the pandemic as home prices positively spike. And rents are way up, too, especially for single-family homes, which are in much higher demand. Renters just want more space out in the burbs. So is it more affordable to own or rent? Well, the answer, believe it or not, is still owning. But the gap is shrinking fast. Owning the median-priced home is more affordable than the average rent on a three-bedroom home in just over half the country, and that's according to a new report from Adam. So home ownership expenses consume less of the average salary than monthly rent. Now, much of this, of course, is because mortgage rates are so low right now. But they are rising fast, and that's why this scenario may change soon. Of course, all real estate is local, so home ownership is more affordable than renting in suburban and rural areas, but it's cheaper to rent in big cities like Los Angeles, Chicago, Phoenix, and San Diego. Owning a home is more affordable in Houston, San Antonio, Detroit, Philadelphia, and Tampa. Now, this report is about affordability, not about which is the better investment. Home ownership historically builds wealth. But some would rather take that down payment on a home and put it in the stock market or another investment. That calculation generally depends on how long you intend to own the home. Kelly, it's usually five to seven years is the best bet at least. For the break even. Interesting. Diana, thank you very much. And I should mention the home builders under pressure again today. And they've been down about as much as the Nasdaq so far this year. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thanks for your time. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place.